this is Dan Woods here at Early Adopter Research doing a podcast from RSA 2019. I'm sitting here with Nick Lanta, CEO of Fidelis Cybersecurity. Uh, what we're going to talk about today are the three questions we're asking everybody and our bonus questions. Uh, and I've asked Nick if he could explain what Fidelis does in terms of the NIST framework of identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover so we can understand where he's coming from in his answers. So, Nick, glad to have you with us. How would you explain um, uh, what, cyber, uh, what Fidelis does? So, we are a uh, platform that um, when, when you look at, uh, at the buckets of what we do within the security spaces, we, we detect uh, and respond uh, to threats, whether they're inbound, whether they're insider threats, um, whether it's data lo- leaving the organization, uh, and we do that across a hybrid environment. So we do it across on-prem, uh, in the data center, in the cloud, across your network and your endpoints. Um, and what we also do is we marry that together with some deception technology. Uh, so we uh, try to change the uh, uh, the cost profile of a of an attacker uh, by by making it harder uh, and slowing them down, uh, and then we marry that all together with the ability to do uh, terrain mapping, asset discovery, and classification. So we're bringing together several disciplines together into a a platform that that allows you to to hunt uh, and find bad. Uh, more readily. Do you do firewall and endpoint security, or is, is there those? Things? So, so we don't do firewall. We partner with firewalls. Uh, so that's a that's a, a, a very synergistic technology for us. Uh, we do do at the endpoint uh, detection and response capability, forensic capability uh, there. Um, so we have an embedded AV that's not ours, um, but uh, you know we have a, a very robust uh, detect and respond. Uh, capability across uh, the enterprise. Got it, and, and, it, and it's detect and respond for servers and laptops, not for mobile, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, we, we'll see. We'll see the traffic if the mobile connects in. Uh, then we'll see that traffic uh, given our our network traffic analysis capabilities. Good. So a relatively large footprint. Yes. Mm-hmm. Got it. So what I wanted to talk about first is um, the question I've been asking people about zero trust, because it seems like you know the idea of zero trust is that you're able to focus on a new individual who arrives in the network not knowing who they are. They have to establish who they are. And then based on who they say they are and what they're trying to do, you kind of envelop them in some sort of kind of personalized segmentation with appropriate permissions. And if you think through this in its logical, you know, taking it to its logical limits, you'd think, well, if we have zero trust, we shouldn't really have to worry about a perimeter anymore. But it seems the way that it's practically implemented is that zero trust happens inside the perimeter, but also zero trust happens outside the perimeter. It's this additive capability, and you really don't get to get rid of your perimeter. You really have to have it. So, you know, what what does zero trust mean in practice? You know, because it, it, it seems like it should be taking something away, but it doesn't. It's, a, it's another additive yeah. responsibility. It, it is an additive. You know, we, we look at the network uh, from the perspective that um, we need to find what's not normal in the normal, right? And so, you know, when, when you look at, uh, you know, a zero-trust environment, when you're adding uh, folks in and it's, it's more access control, uh, and then we say that you're good and, and that's assumed that it's, everything is fine around you, 
the, the issue becomes is what happens when credentials are hijacked, what happens when someone escalates within an environment and grabs your, you know, your ability to authenticate into an environment. Um, so you know, our, our view of the world is that you know, we're just going to assume that everything's bad and we have to inspect everything to the nth degree. Uh, and I think that you know, it's not just perimeter, it's not just authenticating. Um, it, it, it needs to be a, a holistic view of, of, a, of a security environment where you're looking at everything, all of the raw data, all the meta, you're, you're, being, you know, you're, you're marrying that together with, with intelligence that, you know, that, that then allows you to um, pull out the threads in the normal traffic that actually aren't normal, right, based on, uh, you know, based on anomalies or based on on whitelisting or blacklisting or signature based or you know or just metadata analytics or machine learning or other, these various other techniques for detecting um, there needs to be a way to determine um, you know how do you find the adversary that's already gained valid credentials and is moving around your environment as a valid user I see. And as part of your deception technology, do you like put in decoys and things like that? Uh, we, we do. So part of what we do is, is we, uh, we build out decoys in several different fashions. We'll build out emulations of networks. So we'll, we'll scan an, a network environment and, and we'll be able to look at all of the assets, what they're connected to, what's running on them, and then be able to build an emulation of that that moves and flexes just like your real network. And then we also have the ability to put out VMs that allow you to put golden images out there so that you can randomize what that environment looks like. So it's not, it's not as easily detectable by adversaries that are more sophisticated to be able to determine, hey, you know, these are all the same. They're plain vanilla, right? We know that those are decoys. So the idea is that your security system sort of doesn't really care about zero trust because whether or not the person's trusted, whether or not they are, you're going to observe their behavior Correct. and try to find out if there's anything nefarious going on, whether they're, whatever their trust level is. Correct, because the, the individual may, may very well be trusted and, and doing nothing wrong, but if, if his credentials are hijacked or, or his ability to access a certain system has been hijacked and it looks as though it's him, we need to know right, if, that's, if that's normal behavior or not. Uh, so you know, we're looking at... We're looking and trying to pick out the, the, the nuances in activity that will be able to determine whether something's good or bad or allowed or not allowed, uh, and then put the pieces together and you know, put that puzzle together in a manner where we can determine what's, what's actually bad. Um, now, the next question I want to ask you is about portfolio uh, pruning. Uh, it seems like that the cybersecurity world is always adding new capabilities and that we don't really have yet seen very many capabilities where they've actually pruned uh, and made some capabilities unnecessary. Now, it's been pointed out to me that, you know, in a sense, inside a vendor's footprint, there has been some sort of replacement. So because the way antivirus is done now is a lot different the way, than the way it was done at the beginning. But people have been saying antivirus is dead for quite a while, but there's still big booths of antivirus vendors, and they may be doing things differently, but the capability endures. What I'm kind of surprised about is that we haven't had new capabilities that have made certain sets of capabilities no longer needed. 
we haven't had any pruning happen on that regard yet. I mean, do you think that we're ever going to get there, or is, is, is cybersecurity just an expanding landscape of kitchen gadgets that, that you know, may be assembled into different forms by vendors, but, uh, but just doesn't, but don't seem to ever go away? Yeah, so it's a, that's a great question uh, because the, the, the buildup that's happened over the last decade in security really has amounted to uh, you know, a spend environment to, with the assumption that the end goal is that you're better off than you were before you started. And, and I've had many, many conversations with, with our CISOs and heads of security and heads of SOC around the world on this, and everybody is starting to look at how do I... Uh, how do I make the stack more efficient? Right? What do we take out? What do, who, which partners do we partner with that are more strategic to us? So the, you know, anecdotally, the numbers that I'm hearing is that you know we're, we've got stacks that range anywhere from 40 to 65 security products. We're looking to bring that down somewhere in the range. I've heard as low as 10 and as high as 35. Um, and the idea there is that the products that are installed have a lot of overlap now. As you'd said, some of the you know, vendors are starting to build out and, and, and put tentacles into other areas of, of, uh, uh, you know, of the stack. Um, there is a lack of talent to run them, um, and the meaning run them very well, and the cost structure is becoming prohibitive now. So there is, there is definitely a downward uh, uh, you know, a downward pressure on the uh, on the overall pricing that they're that they're uh, incurring, but we're seeing absolutely a desire for uh, consumers for for organizations to say, okay, right, we want to bring in, we want to show us and talk to us about what else you can do. Um, so you know, we have that dialogue a lot now, um, where you know, it's not just. You know, not just the ability to do threat detect and respond on the network, but it's also to do DLP on the network, for instance. Well, it seems like that um, while there isn't capability pruning, one capability replacing, although I have seen some examples where some of the new AI anomaly detection technology, some CISOs have told me that they're using it to replace their SIM because they're finding out everything they need to find out from you know, uh, 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 from that level of product. Mm -hmm. So they don't really need the SIM anymore. But it seems like what we're not getting is capability pruning. We're getting vendor pruning, you know, because the vendors are now you know, creating larger footprints and, and creating some more simplified, you know, ways to, to run their products. Yeah, I think that um, you know, I think that the pruning is happening probably on both fronts. I think that there is a desire to, um, you know, it used to be that the old adage was that you know, never, nothing ever got unplugged in the security stack. Right. Right. Exactly. It was just one thing was added onto the next, onto the next, onto the next, and never got unplugged. I think that now there there is a, you know, a, a realization that there are you know too many alerts firing off. There's too much noise. Uh, and, and trying to find the signal is getting not easier, but getting harder. And so I think that the desire is to get more of a solution that, that provides you with the true content, you know, that gets you faster to the context and content and, you know, and, and, and what actually is happening versus being flooded with, you know, the current architecture, which is, you know, which is all based on, on aggregation of, of logs and alerts 
and then you got to go triage them, right? And then it's Groundhog Day the next day. It starts over again. Uh, versus, you know, really going after and finding those needles in the haystack and being able to put them together in sequence to be able to say, okay, right, when I see these two or three things in sequence, that's something bad. I need to go and address it. So what, what, we're, what I'm hearing in the marketplace is the desire to, to be more uh, on the proactive side and more on the hunting side versus more on the reactive side and on the alert triaging aspect of the of this so um, you know there uh, there there is a sentiment that you know that the industry um, isn't functioning as well as it should uh, that organizations are questioning whether they're any better off after all the spend and all the you know all the headache uh, you know as to from our security posture um, and and some of the CISOs are coming back and saying no we, we don't feel that we are any better off you know, we feel that the attack surface has, has expanded. We feel that we kept investing into the security space, and now we've we've got a massive stack, and we don't feel that our security posture is is all that much better than it was before we started this. So, what's going to happen in your view is that vendors are going to solve that by integrating capabilities into larger portfolios, so that you'll have fewer vendors uh, with bigger products and. Um, and that those products will be integrated so that the complexity goes down. Yeah, I, I certainly think there'll be a consolidation, and it's happening. Right? I think that um, the space has been overfunded. Um, I think that the space has a lot of uh, uh, Me Too componentry to it. Um, I think that the ability to actually integrate through consolidation and acquisition has not really panned out. It, it's, it's been very difficult for organizations and, and security vendors to actually um, uh, you know, do that well. Uh, and I think that just integration in general to have you know, disparate vendors um, you know, miraculously say that they're going to integrate and work together on behalf of the customer hasn't worked out as, as, it's, been, uh, you know, ha as it's been advertised. So, you know, integration in general in the security space has not um, has not gone the way I think that people have wanted it to be. You know, as far as users and consumers have wanted it to go. Right, and, and, and essentially, the companies that have integrated have essentially started from a vision of products and created, for the most part, new products to be added to the portfolio from their own development and engineering. Correct, versus, versus integration. every once in a while maybe buying something here Correct. or there, but most of the time it's all organically designed to work together. Mm -hmm. And the integration has essentially failed. Yeah, and I think that the, you know, that the real desires are, are just that, an, an integrated solution, something that, ha that has the embedded automation and orchestration and correlation of, you know, of activities to find bad. Um, and, and that is... Um, you know, that has not been an easy thing, right? That's been thrown onto the shoulders of the SIM. Uh, that's been thrown onto the shoulders of the SOARS. Uh, and, you know, all, that, all that's happening is that you're getting more data and, and more alerting. And, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Because and the SOAR acronym, just so that everybody... Uh, uh, automation orchestration, right? Yeah. The security automation orchestration. Got it. And right. then the, uh, the SIM is the security... Uh, event information management, mm -hmm. just Correct. for the people who are new to the uh, cybersecurity mm -hmm. world. 
Um, okay, so the next question I wanted to ask was about cloud migration. It seems like the more and more of cybersecurity capabilities are offered through cloud systems, even the on-premise capabilities are reaching out and sending data to the cloud, getting signals back from the cloud, having some of their offline processing or make things that make them more intelligent happen in the cloud. Obviously, there's a whole um, set of uh, security that needs to take place for cloud infrastructure itself. And then it does seem like that the one place where you do have legit zero-trust perimeterless work is when a company has become a completely cloud company and they, they don't have a perimeter even in their, their offices. It's everything is, is, is zero trust and there is actually no firewall you know, at their offices and everybody works as if they're wherever they are. There, there is no, no kind of home office, home protected environment. How do you think the migration of cybersecurity to the cloud is gonna happen? You know, what's gonna stay in the cloud? I mean, what's gonna stay on premise? What's gonna go in the cloud? How will that, that migration take place? Yeah, I, th- I mean, it's already happening. Right, we're we're already in a in a hybrid environment. There, there's obviously some, um, you know, some uh, types of industries that are, are not moving yet to the cloud, um, and and we see that. Uh, but for the most part, there is, you know, they're in some phase of of moving that way. Um, how long it's going to take, I think it's going to vary by, you know, by industry and by company. Um, but I think that this movement um, is a, uh, it's an economic movement in part. Uh, it's a simplicity and, you know, access movement. Um, so I think that it's, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a freight train that's not going to stop. But I do think that we are going to be living in a hybrid environment for quite some time, meaning that we're still going to have to protect on-prem. We're still going to have to protect, you know, the company data center. We're still going to have to protect in the public and private cloud we're still going to have to protect when you know organizations bring BYOD in um, and so you know we'll be in this in this hybrid environment for for the foreseeable future and I think people are surprised when they they, they hear that the spending on cloud you know based solutions is 10 percent or something like that I mean most of the checks that are written are for on-premise solutions yeah yeah, it's a uh, again, right? I think I think we're in this migration for sure. Um, I would have thought that it would have probably moved faster in some segments, um, but I think that there is certainly some caution. I think that there is, uh, you know, certainly um, some vetting that that is that is taking place, and um, I think that the eventually that the you know that the cloud is going to take on the the brunt of compute, um, you know, in organizations. Got it. Now, I have three extra questions that I've asked people, bonus questions, um, that I'd just love to get your quick take on. Mm-hmm. First of all, um, when I talk to CISOs, often they're interested in new capabilities for cybersecurity, and then you know they aren't as interested in improving their operational discipline. And it seems to me that you know instead of buying a new capability, most CISOs would benefit from improving their configuration management, their patch management, their ability to inventory assets, and focusing on, you know, more automation, more ability to respond and, 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 and protect their environment through better backups and things like that. Do you think that, um, that you know, that is a generally true statement that CISOs would be better off spending the next, you know, incremental rise in their budget on operational discipline rather than new capabilities? 
You know, I think first of all, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in agreement with the statement that you know it's it's needed. Uh, I think that there has been a um, uh, a lack of true operational security focus. And I'm not saying everybody, but I think in general, uh, I think that there's been a uh, you know kind of a a false sense of security, and that you know compliance has become the proxy for true operational security, and, and that's not the case, and it shouldn't be the case. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, you know, you'd mentioned patching, I think, is, is critical. Um, you know, that would certainly have saved a lot of companies a lot of embarrassment over the years. Um, you know, I think that the idea of, uh, you know, being able to uh, go in and understand your environment, uh, where the assets are, what your critical assets are, you know, enclaving them, uh, you know, putting them in a place that is that has extra security uh, around them uh, and extra visibility around them. Those are all important things. And, and you know, I think that the, the pace of business and the need for ease of use in, in enterprises um, aren't necessarily the friends of good security. Um, you know, I've heard many stories where the last person to hear of a new app turning on or a new website getting turned on are the security teams because business is moving at, at, at a fast pace. Things outpace the need to, you know, tell the security folks that we need to secure it and, you know, be ready for it. Um, but, you know, I do think that, um, that if organizations just operationally really, um, you know, really bore down on it, uh, they would be far better off. Uh, from a security posture than they are today. What do you mean by compliance is the proxy for true operational security? You know, there, there's been, uh, uh, you know, there, there were a lot of legislations that have gone on throughout the years that have come out uh, to uh, help and assist in, in security, right? And it, and it goes back to, you know, to the, uh, you know, to the early 2000s where, you know, all well-intentioned legislation coming out to, to enhance and to force companies to be secure. You must have a firewall, you must have antivirus, you must do this or this, and it's a checklist. So organizations went out and bought to the checklist, and then they were able to sign these off based on the checklist when uh, you know, that isn't the end, right? That's, not, that's only the beginning of then you know, doing true operational security, right? Now you have to drive those products, you have to you know, really understand what's going on, really, you know, really hire in the talent that knows how to run them the right way. And, and we've, you know, there, there's been quite a bit of, you know, letting compliance sort of become the proxy for true Right, yeah, I, now I see what you mean, that, that just because you're compliant doesn't mean that you actually... That you're actually secure. Yeah. That's it. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the next question I have is um, about cybersecurity culture. Obviously, you know, one person put it to me earlier today that the people are the true perimeter. And that, you know, there's no way that you can really be truly secure unless you have a security mindset so that people are aware of the kind of problems that their behavior causes. Mm -hmm. That, you know, it's not just the auditing uh, security people who uh, stop somebody from putting a post-it note of passwords on their, their desktop computer. But, you know, other people say that's a bad idea. It's not going to help us. If, you know, you do that, it, it's going to hurt us. Mm -hmm. and, and But it doesn't seem, I haven't found anybody who has a, who can point to companies that have a real, you know, powerful model for how to actually, you know, get that culture going. It, it seems like it's a, 
it's more difficult than you might think. It is. It, it is more difficult. I mean, you know, the, the places where you can point towards that actually do it well are, you know, the classified sides of the government, right? The the intelligence community, but you can't bring that model out to the commercial sector because it wouldn't work. You you can't bring that to a trading floor, right? It just they they don't work. Uh, so so there has to be a an ability to modify and uh, and bring a security culture out to environments that are, are really, they, they can't function if they were too locked down. So I think that, uh, you know, the whole concept of, of security as a culture is, is a great one and it needs to happen, um, but it, it's not a one-size-fits-all um, in the industry. Do you know of anybody that does a good job outside of those intelligence communities? Um, Look, the financial services, uh, you know, do do a good job uh, of it. Um, you know, I would say that uh, you know we see across, really across m multiple um, industries, we see pockets of excellence, right? Whether it's uh, retail or or you know energy uh, or uh, industrials or technology firms. I mean, we really do see some some fantastic yeah. companies that do it really well. Yeah, no, I'd love to uh, to talk to some of those people about you know how they actually do it. Uh, and uh, the last question I have is about cybersecurity insurance. Mm -hmm. A lot of the CISOs, CIOs, and CTOs are being asked to buy this insurance, um, but they're very reluctant to spend the money and wish they could not buy it because they don't believe that it will actually provide much value. It may provide certain expenses, it may provide uh, certain coverage, but it generally doesn't provide any uh, insurance against the, f the first party loss, you know, whatever you, you, know, you, you, you lost in the attack. Mm -hmm. It may, and, and there's all sorts of escape hatches yes, there are. in the policies so that, that they can in many ways cannot pay. And I, I've only found one person who said that they had run into people who actually were grateful that they had the insurance and actually got paid an adequate amount on the claims they made. Um, what would you do if you were a CISO and you, you wanted to argue against cyber insurance as a, as a bad investment? Well, look, I mean, I think the, the insurance industry is still figuring out how to price it, right? And, uh, and when the first policies came out, they were they were paying out more than they should have or wanted to. And then they ratcheted up the, the amount of T's and C's on the back end of these claims uh, and on the back end of, the, of their actual contracts, right, with the companies. And, and now, um, you know, the ability to extract payment has gone down sharply um, because there are all these escape hatches or, or uh, abilities to, to, to not pay. Um, but I do think that from a best practices standpoint, you need it. I think that um, you know it, it would be it would be foolish not to have a policy in place. Um, you know we've we've had involvement in in many instances where um, there have been breaches and we've been brought in, um, and there have been payouts. Um, you know not I don't I don't know what the you know what the overall size of the payouts were, but you know the insurance policy did what at least in part did what it was supposed to do. Got it. Uh, so it's 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 like it's it's 
you're not going to win the argument against insurance, but maybe you can be a sophisticated buyer yeah. and and you just accept it and try to use it as a positive uh, uh, force in your environment. Yeah, because I think too that you know the you know some of these decisions are you know are, are board level visibility now. I think that some of the um, you know the uh, you know the 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 appearance of of making sure that you're doing everything that you need to do to protect your company and minimize risk. I mean that's certainly a part of the of the risk equation is having some form of insurance, whatever that might be. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, for talking to me today. This is a really good conversation. I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Thank you.